So if you're uh, fairly new to us uh, at Gateway, we are uh, in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and we're taking our time. We're not in a hurry. Um, we're probably covering about a chapter a month, roughly. We're going through every verse, so it's going to take us about uh, two years, a little bit longer, actually, uh, to get all the way through the Gospel of Luke. And we're taking our time because it's just so good. So um, we're enjoying it. So last week we kind of had a, I, I planned on covering the temptations of Christ in chapter four in one sermon, but we didn't make it through. And it was kind of one of those, in fact, in retrospect, I'm like, you know, Lord, how come there wasn't four temptations? Because that would make, you know, I could divide that. Three is really awkward. But anyways, we did two last week. We're going to do one this week, and then we're going to cover a couple of just principles for us to carry out of this. But we're talking about Jesus. He's just been baptized by John um, to identify a righteous life for us. Uh, He's led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, For 40 days Jesus was tempted by, and this is important, by the devil. So... I feel like I just need to say this. I didn't say it last week and I realized, kind of maybe should have. We're talking about an actual being, all right? We're talking about the devil who is a, who is a created being. The devil is not, um, as some religions would teach you, he's not the brother of Jesus. Um, the devil is not um, an, an eternal being. He was created by God, actually created as an angel. We believe an archangel, possibly the greatest, most powerful, most beautiful of all the angels that God God had created. He fell in his pride. He rebelled against God. When he fell, uh, a third of the angels fell with him. We now refer to them as demons. He's real and he is God's enemy and he is our enemy. In fact, the word devil in the Greek there um, in verse two is the word diabolos. And uh, it's, a, it's a compound word. It means to literally to kind of throw across or, or toss towards something. That's the idea of, of hurling accusations. That's the idea that he is an, an accuser that he is a slanderer. And we, we see this, for instance, if you look in the Old Testament in the book of Job, you read a story of how the devil comes before God and, and casts accusations against Job, if you've ever read that. So the devil is someone who goes, and by the way, we make his job kind of easy. Um, we usually give him a lot of ammunition to go and, you know, like, did you see what Bob did yesterday? Did you see how fast he was driving on the 14? Can you believe this guy? Like we give, and then the devil goes to God and says, did you see this, right? Like, and he's an accuser. But here's something I thought about last week that I hadn't really given a lot of thought to before. Not only does the devil accuse us before God, but the devil accuses God before us. So that's really what's happening in the temptations. The devil comes to Jesus and says, can you really trust God? Can you really trust your father? Is he really good to you? Will he really provide for you? That's really what the temptations are all about. He's casting accusations toward the father. Now, this week I was reminded of yet a third way that he does it. And that is he likes to cast accusations between believers. Because he would love to get us to be angry with each other, to hate each other, because Jesus was pretty clear about that. And I was reminded about that um, on Friday. I was out running some errands. I was over in Vancouver. And um, I was I'd gone into the store, I, a clothing store, and I'm walking down the aisle and I'm responding to an email. And um, I look up and I see someone coming the other way. Uh, and kind of, I ha- it's somebody I haven't seen for five years. I haven't seen her for five years. I haven't seen her for five years because it was about five years ago um, that this person was attending our church. Um, the leadership 
uh, had made a very difficult decision at the time. It was a hard decision to make, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes, even in a church, decisions are made that not everybody likes. Not every vote is unanimous. And this was one of those decisions that uh, this person didn't like. And um, even though I wasn't actually part of the group that made the decision, I, I became the lightning rod for their displeasure. And um, they left the church uh, and uh, immediately unfriended me on Facebook. That's how I knew. I was in the doghouse and um, basically didn't want to, didn't want any kind of reconciliation at all. They just offended at the decision. And that's how it went. So, you know, again, we're, we're, we're people, we're not perfect, we have tension at times, we have issues at times. It's five years ago. I don't know about you, but, you know, when I see something, someone in a situation like that, I just immediately what I think is, well, I don't have any hard feelings, and I'm sure she doesn't either. And so I saw her coming the other way, and I was like, hey, how you doing? And we're like in this public place, and she's walking by, and she says loud enough for everyone to hear, she says, drop dead. Right, so I'm like, and I was actually tempted. I, the first thing I did was laugh, and I, I thought it'd be super funny if I dropped to the ground. Like, that would just be, <laughs> I wasn't going to do that. Actually, the reason I was laughing was because I thought she was kidding. I mean, it's been five years, and then I looked at her, and I realized she wasn't kidding. She really does want me to drop dead. I mean, not to be overdramatic, but, you know, basically what she was saying was, I wish that your wife was a widow. I wish that your kids had no father. And, um, and it got me to thinking as I walked by, um, how, like, Jesus didn't leave any wiggle room, did he? When it came to how we should be loving one another, did he? Was it like, well, you can mostly love one another. I understand if you don't love each other sometimes. I know people do say things and say things. and I don't know. I just feel like Jesus was very, very clear about that. And I, I wrestled with how does it, like, when there's something that fundamental, that, how does a person get to that place? And I think that, it all comes down to the fact that this is spiritual warfare, folks. And hate is spiritual warfare. And the devil loves to come to us and say, did you see what he did? Did you see what he said? They don't like a decision they made. You have every right to be mad at them. You have every right to wish they would drop dead. You have every right to say things like that in public. And it'll feel so good when you say it. It'll just be so satisfying when you do it. And the devil baits us and we go for the bait. And when we go for the bait, right, this is what we said last week. What ends up happening is we take the bait and we end up living in a prison of our own making. We, 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 we choose it to live in a prison of bitterness. Who does that? Who lives in a prison of bitterness for five years or more? Well, people, I think, who succumb to the temptations of the devil. Let's just call it what it is. See, the devil doesn't want us to understand. He doesn't want us to know that. He doesn't want us to know that he hates us. He doesn't want us to know that he wants to take us down. He wants us to think this is a game, that we're justified in our sin. In fact, I thought this week about like some of the ways that the devil tries to uh, manage his image in the world, right? Because if we all just saw the devil for who he was, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have anything to do with him. We wouldn't listen to anything he says. So he comes along and tries to trick us. Sometimes he tries to get us to just be afraid of him. And I see this sometimes with Christians who are so afraid of the devil that they don't want to say anything or do anything or act it with any kind of faith that would draw attention from the devil. They're a little superstitious that way. They don't want his attention. They don't want him to come after them, so they, they're, 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 they're quiet. They, they play it safe. And what they forget is, the Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the devil. So God's power is in you. You, you, don't, you don't have to worry about that. Now, there's another thing the devil tries to do, and that is he'll just try to get us to dismiss him. Like, 
We think of the devil as a cartoon character, little red guy with a little trident thing, right? And a pointy tail. And, and like the extent of his work is um, he'll try to jam up your copier today, right? And he laughs and he goes on his way. You kick the copier and he's, see, we forget that he's more cunning, that he knows more. He's more intelligent than you. He's more powerful than you. He's evil and he hates you, right? We miss that. He hates you. It's not a game. The third thing the devil will try to do, and I think this is where he's having the most success, is just get, to get people to deny his existence altogether, right? Because if people don't believe that he exists, as one writer said, his work's done. Well, I don't know that it's done, but he's got a good start if you don't believe he exists. In fact, a couple of years ago, Barna Research did a poll amongst people who claimed to be Christians, and they gave them this statement. This is a statement, and you would either agree with it or not. Satan is not a living being, but is simply a symbol of evil, right? And 60% of self-identifying Christians said they agree with that statement, that the devil isn't actually a being. He's just an idea, and he's got to be going, yay, (laughs) that's right. It's not me doing all this stuff. There's no hateful, vengeful, spiteful devil, but in fact, there is. Jesus faced an intelligent being. Jesus conversed with the devil, was challenged by the devil, didn't make light of the devil, didn't, you know, tweak his ears or something like that. He, uh, and if you are a Christian, you have an enemy, the same enemy, and he wants to sideline you, he wants to tempt you, but the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, and you can have victory. So last, last week we began talking about the temptations. We looked at the first two. The first temptation, if you were here, and if you weren't, you can go back and listen to the podcast, but the first temptation was to turn a stone into bread. You're like, okay, never faced that one before. Um, Jesus is in the wilderness, 40 days he hasn't eaten. The devil comes along and says, is this any way for God's son to live? I mean, is this the way God takes care of you, right? No food for 40 days. So he says, if you're a God's son, just turn that stone into bread. We said that the bread itself isn't a sin, but it's the, the, the temptation to sin. And the temptation is to overreach God's provision, to take for yourself what God has not given you. So Jesus simply says, it's, it's the spirit of God who led me here. And I'm not going to take over and take control. I'm going to wait on the same God. Same God who brought me here is the same God who will feed me. And the solution we said last week is not just to believe in God, but to believe God because those are two different things. A lot of people believe, you know, they believe in God, but Jesus believed God. He believes God's word, that God loves him, cares about him, and would provide for him. Same thing is true for us today. Second temptation is uh, we said to take a shortcut in particular to glory. So the devil takes Jesus up to a high place, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says, Jesus, didn't you come to build your kingdom? Here's an idea. Why go through three years? Here's God's plan. How does this sound? Three years of rejection, three years of hunger, three years of sleeping on a you know, dirt road, three years that you'll be betrayed by your best friends, uh, you'll be nailed to a cross where you'll suffer and you'll, die, and you'll die. Why go through all that when the devil says, when I can give you a crown without a cross? So the temptation is to take a shortcut. The sin is what we call divided loyalty. It's where the devil comes along and says, you know, hey, in life, in general, when you have to make a decision, think of it this way. Always, always go to God. God, what's your plan? But if you don't like God's plan, if God's plan is too long, it's like three years, God, I don't, I don't have three years. I don't want to go through all that. 
then just consider, are there any other options? Are there any other ways? Are there any other shortcuts that you could take to get where you want to go? Devil's like, I got a lot of them. Got a lot of shortcuts for you if, if, if you're willing. And so that's the temptation. What's the solution? We said, Jesus says, to worship God only. To worship God means to put God first and foremost in every part of your life, in all of your decisions, in, in all of those things, to worship God only. So two temptations, and then the devil comes back another time. Now remember, we don't know how many temptations there were. We know there were 40 days and nights of continual temptations. We're just given three, that's all. Three representative temptations. So Jesus is exhausted. Jesus is hungry. Jesus has been, you know, in spiritual battle. He's alone, which is kind of when a lot of our sins are committed. Isn't that true? When we're tired, when we're down, when we're hungry, right? When we're alone. And that's what Jesus is facing. And that takes us to temptation number three. And we find the third temptation in verse nine. And he, that is the devil, took him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, they're in the wilderness and now they're going to Jerusalem. How do they get there? We're not really sure. Somehow the devil transports both of them there. They go there. They're at the temple complex. And, and we believe, probably scholars think, that they're in the, um, in the southeast corner of the, of the complex, that, that literally there's a ledge that drops down into the Kidron Valley. And the drop is, depending on where you are, anywhere from two to 450 feet which I don't really know matters. After 20 feet or so, you're going to die anyways. And so they're up really high and they're looking out over the valley and the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, or again, we said last week, this word if can be sense, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written. In other words, the devil says, oh, let me quote you some Bible, right? Here's what the Bible says. God will command his angels concerning you. They will guard you and, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil says, you know, I, I, I keep tempting you. You keep quoting the Bible. So here's the deal. I like the Bible too. The devil says, I like to quote the Bible. I don't know if you find that surprising that the devil likes it, that the devil reads the Bible, that the devil memorizes the Bible, that the devil uses the Bible, that the devil likes to take the Bible and pull it out of context and twist it and turn it and then try to give it back to you, which is what he does here. He takes it out of context. Shouldn't surprise you. In fact, he does it in a lot of ways. It's unfortunate that a lot of times the devil does it from pulpits where pastors take the Bible, they take it out of context, they misuse it. But sometimes, and I had this happen recently, the devil did it where there was a knock on my door, right? And uh, there's a couple of people at the door, answer the door. They're like, hey, you know, we're just kind of going around door to door. We're talking about God, talking about the Bibles that ever happened to you. And so whenever someone comes to my door and they're like, hey, we're just going around talking about the Bible. Do you ever read the Bible? I always, I'm always like, yeah, yeah, I read the Bible. Yeah, I like the Bible. The Bible's good, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm trying to walk a fine line here. I, I mean, I want to have a conversation with him. I don't want to mislead him. And, uh, but I don't usually just come out and go, actually, it's my job. So I don't usually, I just kind of like, yeah, yeah, oh, well. And so they'll always usually say, well, we're, we're Christians and, you know, we, we go to a church and we believe in, we believe in Jesus. And, but they'll say, you know, um, do you believe that Jesus is God? And I'll always say, yeah, yeah, I believe he's God. Well, where do you get that from? Well, I get it from the Bible, I'm pretty sure. Really, does your pastor teach you that? Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> does the pastor teach you in the Trinity? Has the pastor ever taught you about the Trinity? Yeah. And they'll say, did you know the Trinity doesn't exist? Did you know that Jesus was a man? He was born just a man like anyone else, just like you, just like me. And then he became a God. 
and that there are many gods, not just one, but there are many gods. And Jesus is one God amongst many. And usually this world be like, well, now that's weird because I've never read that in the Bible. And they say, oh, it's right there. Have you ever read John? Yeah, I've read John. I like John. John 1, 1. They're like, here's what it says in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. And I'll be like, whoa, that's, I mean, I've got a Bible. It doesn't say, it doesn't say a God. Well, we have the, tra- you have the wrong translation. Oh, well, I, are you sure? Oh, yeah, yeah. Then they will say this. Well, and this, this happened a few weeks ago. Well, in the Greek, as we'll say, in the Greek, it actually has a. So it says he is a God. That, that's so weird. It doesn't say that in my Bible. Are you sure it says that in the Greek? Yes, it says in the Greek, a God. Jesus was a God. This is usually the point in the conversation where I reach around the corner and I pull out my Bible, which is a Greek Bible. And then I say, well, that's weird because I haven't seen that. So could you just show that to me? And this is where, I'm not trying to be mean, we're just trying to get to the truth here. So that's usually the point where they take my Bible and they open it up and they keep turning and I'll be like, what are you looking for? Well, I can't find the Gospel of John. Well, it's right there. Well, everything's written in Greek. Right. Well, you can't, but I thought you read Greek. Well, no, I don't read Greek. Well, wait, you don't read Greek? Then how do you know what it says? Well, I have a teacher who told me. Oh, and you trust him? You try, yeah, and that's usually where we go in my living room and we have just a little Greek primer lesson right there. And I show them, it doesn't say Jesus was a God. Jesus is God. Where does the doctrine that Jesus was a God come from? It comes from hell, okay? It comes from the devil. Like I said, this is not a game, all right? He wants to get you to question Jesus Christ and who he is. So the devil comes. The devil says to Jesus, you know what? Jesus, it's funny that you keep quoting scripture because I was doing my devotions in Psalm 91 yesterday, right? The devil's like, I, you know, I was doing my devotions. I got together with my grow group. I granted they're all demons, but we got together and we're talking about Psalm 91. We love Psalm 91. It's like one of our favorite. So we're talking about it and I even memorized it, Jesus. And here's the deal. In Psalm 91, it says that if you are one of God's holy ones, you could like jump off someplace and God will protect you and you won't even, you won't even get hurt or anything. So, so Jesus, here's the bait. The bait is live by faith. Jesus, do you believe the Bible? If you do, you're gonna live by faith. If you, I mean, you said you trust God, so prove it. Take Psalm 91 and just do it. Don't talk about it, do it. And if you're not willing to take an audacious step of faith for, for the Lord, then Jesus, I don't know. Do you really believe God? So that's the, and again, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, you read it and you're like, oh, that makes sense, right? And, and it's preached from the pulpit all the time. Yeah, take a big step of faith for God, right? If you really trust God. But here's the sin. The sin is presuming on God. It's a big deal. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's where we take the Bible, where we take a verse and we pull it out of its context. We pull it out, right? Every verse is given in, it's in a story. It's in some teaching. Here's what, here's what false teachers and cults and people like the devil likes to do. Take the verse out, take it out of its context, twist it, add in a couple of words, take away a couple of words, and then quote it back to God. Now, this is the kind of stuff that's preached from pulpits in Christian churches, not just cults, right? And people who will say, what, what you, and, and they won't say it this way, but what it comes down to is it's kind of like treating God like your own personal genie who you learn how to manipulate to get whatever you want. So what you do, and this is something that's preached in churches, even Christian churches, we call it name it and claim it theology. What you do is you find yourself a verse. Well, what you usually do is you start, what do I want from God? What do I want? And then you find a verse 
that kind of sounds like it backs that up. And then you pull that verse out of its context. You twist it around. And then a lot of times what you'll hear in some churches, a lot of churches is, then you speak it out loud. You speak it. It's a, oh, it's weird. You speak it into existence and then you quote it back to God. And then literally when you do it, God has to give you what you asked because you quoted God. The whole idea is you just quote God back to God and God's like, I surrender, right? You're using the big gun, the Bible. Now I have to give you what you want. This is presuming on God, telling God what to do where you play God and God becomes your servant, your genie. And it always happens, by the way, when we take Bible out of context, out of context. So let me give you a couple examples. There's tons of great examples, better examples than these, but these are the ones I came up with. Here's a couple of examples. Philippians 4.13. Here's a verse we love to pull out of context all the time. I can do, in fact, read it with me. This is such an inspiring verse. Ready? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Jesus. And I hear this all the time. I hear it in sermons. I read it in devotionals and name it and claim it churches. I can do anything. Here's the way we do it. I can do anything I want to do through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. I just have to name it and claim it. And I'll just throw the verse back at God and God will be like, I surrender. I got to give it a good one. You got me on my word. I have to give it to you. So that means like I can go out and buy that thing on credit that I can't afford and God will step in and make the payments for me, right? I don't have to study for that test because God's going to strengthen me, right? I, I I can back out on that commitment because I can do all things through Christ. I can date that unbeliever. I can overschedule my week. I can overspend my budget. I can jump off this ledge, right? And it'll be okay because God, I can do anything through God who strengthens me. Now here's the real context of Philippians 4.13. Paul's talking about his life and he's talking about contentment. And he says this, you know what he says? There have been times when I have nothing to eat and there have been times when I have been in prison and there have been times when people have been throwing, you know, when I've been stoned, like with stones, like but people have been throwing stones at me. There have been times when Paul's saying, you know how I do all of those things? I don't name it and claim it. God gives me the strength to do it. He says, when, I'm, when I've had plenty, how can, I, how can I deal with plenty? Through God who strengthens me. When I have nothing, how do I deal with that? Through Christ who strengthens me. This has nothing to do about God changing your circumstances at all. It's about finding God's strength in wherever you find yourself. It's not about changing God's mind It's about allowing God to strengthen you in your situation. But we take it, we twist it, we pull it out of context, we quote it back at God. This is what the devil is doing. This is what the devil does. We should not do that with God's word. Here's another one, Matthew 18, 20. I mentioned this because I got this quoted to me the other day when I was running on the dike. So I'm running and I come across a guy and I'm like, dude, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in church in a long time. So basically what he said was, you know, I was reading the Bible and I realized I don't need to come to church anymore. I don't really like to come to church. I don't need to because Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among with them. So I like to go to, he says, I like to go fishing and I go with a couple of buddies and that's church. We have church. Jesus said, it. Jesus said it. So I don't have to go to church because Jesus said. And that's where, again, this is the, the, so I just explained to him, I said, well, not really. That's not really what he said. Here's what he said. What's the context of Matthew 18, 20? Jesus is talking about what do you do when you have a brother or sister in Christ and they won't, they're sinning and they won't repent of their sin. And they, and you go to them privately and they won't stop sinning. And then you take a few people with you and they won't stop sinning. Here's what he says. This is 
the context. Take a couple of believers with you, face off with the person, call them on their sin, and if they will not repent, basically you've got to cast them out. And he says, where two or three get together to discipline another believer, that's the context, where two or three believers get together to discipline another believer, Jesus says, I am there with you. Well, we turn it into a verse that says, I don't have to go to church anymore and be with other Christians. I can go fishing. And again, the devil's like, yeah, that's right. That's what it means. That's what you do with it. See, this is presuming on God. And presuming on God is sin. It's where I decide what I want. I'm not a Christ follower. I'm a Christ user. I decide what I want. I find a verse. I twist it. And then I demand that God follow my will. So what's the solution to this temptation? It's to follow God's will. It's to follow God's lead. Can you see how that's like the exact opposite of so much Christianity today that, that basically comes to the gospel and says, the gospel is all about getting what I want, what I want, instead of what God wants in my life. In verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now he's hearkening back to Deuteronomy 6.16 when the Israelites are in the desert and they're testing. God said, I love you and I'll take care of you. And they, they, they pushed God in a corner and they questioned that. They tried to manipulate God. What he's saying here is this. We don't use God. We don't manipulate God because we don't have to. <laughs> because God is good all the time and all the time, what? God is good, right? Do we believe that or not? And if we believe that, why do we ever need to manipulate God? Well, the answer is we don't. We trust God. We follow God. We, we worship God. That's what worship is, basically, where you put God first in everything, where you say, God, I trust your character. I trust your plans. I trust your love. The devil says, are you sure you can do that? Are you sure? Jesus says, yes. So when Satan comes to you and, and tempts you to presume on God, to try to control God, to try to tell God what to do, to use God's word against God. Just remember who God is. Who created you? Who thought you up? Who gives you breath? Who gives you life? Who died for you on the cross? Who rose from the dead for you? Who went in the, to the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted? Did he do it for him? Did he have something to prove? No, he did it for you. He did it for me because he loves us. He lived a righteous life in our place. So, three temptations. Not all of them, certainly, but three representatives. So what can we pull out of this really quickly? A couple of things I want you to think about today. The first is this. We're reminded in the temptations that the battle is ongoing, right? As long as you're alive, you're in a battle, right? And I hope that doesn't discourage you. In verse 13, remember it says this, and when the devil had ended every temptation, did them all, he departed, he parted from Jesus until, notice this, until an opportune time. So Satan leaves, but does he leave forever? No. In fact, as we study through the Gospel of Luke, we'll find out that he shows up at several, he, sometimes he shows up through the disciples. Sometimes he'll show up through the Pharisees. Sometimes he'll show up through other people. But he's going to come back again and again and again and again. Because in this life, folks, you're either facing temptation or about to face temptation, all right? So they're just not, not like I faced it and now I'm done. Went through my 40 days. No, you're either facing it 
or you're about to. Really, our spiritual lives have seasons, and maybe you've noticed that. They tend to have seasons, seasons of temptations and battles, and then sometimes there's a season of peace for us as God gives us that rest. And that, that time of rest is always a time to prepare for the next battle because there's always going to be one. And I thought about it this week, even like just in terms of my own life, if, if this makes sense to you, maybe helps you understand your own life. Because my question would be, what are the seasons of your life? So in my life, it looks a little bit like this. If I just look at, at a week, seven days. Um, Saturday is kind of for me when my week begins, if you will. Um, out Thursday and Friday off. So Saturday, get up in the morning. I basically uh, work all day on the sermon, different ministry aspects. Come to church, preach in the evening, go home, edit the sermon, um, you know, take stuff out mostly just take stuff out, and then um, get ready for the next day. Now, Saturday is a really long day, but when I go to bed on Saturday, I just, I'm feeling good, right? Because I love preaching. I love coming on Saturday night. Sunday morning when I get up, I'm not quite as springy as I was when I got up on Saturday. I'm a little bit tired, but I get up, come to church, preach, um, preach again, and then uh, when this is over, we'll have a little business meeting. I'll go home. I'll have family, uh, dinner with my family, and then I immediately have to start mixing down the sermon from this weekend, post it online, take care of some of that administrative stuff, um, answer email, phone calls, and then um, basically start studying for the sermon. And I'll do that until about 11 o'clock tonight or so. So uh, that's what I'll do all day. And then when I go to bed, I need to be kind of at a certain place in the sermon prep. And then on Monday morning, this is where, so this is where it gets tough for me. Monday morning when I wake up, I'm tired physically, I'm tired emotionally, I'm tired spiritually in a way, I've been reading a lot, intellectually I'm tired, and I wake up and usually Monday, Monday and Tuesday are even longer days for me. Um, so a lot of times on Monday, I'll tell you, Monday is when I start feeling tempted. Like here's the first temptation I face every Monday morning. I get up, I have some breakfast, I open my Bible, look at my notes, and I'm always tempted to call Pastor Bill. Say, dude, you're on this week, right? <laughs> like a lot of times I am. I just want to call Bill and go, I think you better preach this weekend, man. Yeah, here, here, on Monday and Tuesday, and Tuesday is actually my longest day of the week. On Monday and Tuesday, I face certain temptations. Um, I'm, I'm tired. I have a busy schedule. I'm often tempted to just call Pastor Bill. I'm often tempted to have a bad attitude, to be discouraged, say things. Here's the big thing my wife and I talked about this last night. Um, we, she kind of laughed. I'm really tempted to be um, a pragmatic on Monday and Tuesday. And by pragmatic, I mean I get up in the morning and I'm like, I have to get these things done on Monday and these things done on Tuesday. And that's all that matters. I got to get these boxes checked off. Pragmatic is, a, is kind of another word for rude, right? So it's like, I just got to get these things done, stay out of my way. I have, to, I have to get this thing done because on the weekend, I have to give an oral report to a whole bunch of people. So I'm just like, I got to get this work done. Now, by Friday, that's all changed. By Friday, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm able to, I'm relaxed. Um, I'm usually rested. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Now, here's the thing I've learned about on Fridays. Friday is a low stress day, which is the day that I need to read my Bible, which is the day I need to meditate on scripture, which is often the day I need to fast. On the day when I'm tempted to do nothing, it's the day really when I need to be preparing for the battle that's coming on Monday. I just told myself it's Friday, but Monday's coming, right? There's going to be a battle on Monday. So Friday is not a time to check out spiritually, which is what we often do. It's a time to prepare. It's a season that God gives. Now, I say that because, you know, maybe for you it's a week. 
Maybe for you, it's more like a month. But here's what I want you to think about. When those seasons of rest come, ask yourself, what is the purpose of a season of rest when I'm not dealing with temptation? It's to prepare for the next battle that's coming. That's when you should be in the word. That's when you should be in prayer. Here's what it says in scripture. Submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you resist him, he'll eventually move on because he's got limitations. So here's something to consider. The devil is not like God. God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere. God can be more than one place at a time. The devil is not. He is just a created being. He can only be in one place at a time. Now, he's got some demons that work with him that do his bidding, but they can only be in one place at a time as well. So what that means is if the devil or if he sends one of his, one of his minions to come after you and to tempt you, and if you resist him and you resist him, eventually he's going to move on because he's just wasting his time. And, you know, he's going to like, fine, that's, I'll move on. And so on he will move when you resist him. But remember that he'll be back, right? Just like he was with Jesus all the way to the cross. So we remember that in this life, there is a battle. There are times when we're tempted and there are times when we prepare for the temptation as well. Here's the second thing to keep in mind. We need to be people who are connected. Now, let me, this is one that's not intuitive in the passage. In the Bible, it's been said that there are two kinds of passages. There are passages that are, prescriptive and passages that are descriptive. So let me explain the difference. A descriptive passage simply explains something that happened. And you may or may not be able to draw principles out of it for your life. It's a description. Here's something that happened. A prescriptive passage is a passage that teaches you what you should do in your life. So, when we come to, so for instance, in a lot of the New Testament, when you come to epistles or letters, those are pretty much prescriptive. Here's what you do. Here's how you live. Here's how you pray. Here's how you give. This is a descriptive passage. This is a passage that describes for us something that happened to Jesus. Jesus does for us a very unique work in the temptations that we could not do for ourselves. So he does it for us. He's led into the wilderness for 40 days. This is not prescriptive. If it was prescriptive, what it would mean is at some point in your life, you're going to need to go hiking up in Skamania with a tent, no need for food, and you're going to go up there for 40 days, and you're going to camp out, and you're going to be tempted for 40 days. That's not what this is. This is not prescriptive. This is describing what Jesus did for us. Now, on the other hand, we'll see in this gospel that there are times when Jesus gets away for a half a day or so and he spends that time in isolation for prayer, for meditation, for Bible. And those are things that we can do as well. But, but an isolation lifestyle is not what scripture teaches and something that we need to think about when it comes to temptation. And here's what I mean by an isolation lifestyle. Uh, well, I'm not really going to get plugged into a spiritual community because no church is perfect and it requires a lot of sacrifice and I don't even need it because, right, wherever two or three are gathered, right, so I'm good, right? So an isolation lifestyle is where I'm not going to commit my, say, and understand, I'm not talking even about going to church. You understand that going to church isn't doing church, all right? 
Going, you can come to, go to church and leave. I'm talking about being the church, where you come and you commit yourself to other believers. Where you say, I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve you and we're going to be a family. That's different, all right? At, but when you say, I don't want to do that, when you say, I'm not going to have friends who get all spiritual on me and try to hold me accountable, all right, does that make sense? Like, where I, sometimes people do this, I don't want to have a bunch of spiritual friends and they're always like, hey, you know, what do you need to confess? And, you know, what are your temptations? And, and, and you know, how can we help you? Like, I don't want to have those conversations with believers. I don't want to do it. I think they'll be bugging me and they'll be calling me and, you know, or, you know, I'm watching TV or the internet again. And some people do that. They're like, I don't want anyone to confess to. I don't want anyone to hold me accountable. In Hebrews 10, 24, it tells us this. Let us consider, all right? So in other words, let's all stop for a minute and think about this. Let us consider how to stir up one another. The one another, that's just people sitting around you. It's people live in your house. It's people you do time with. Let us consider how to stir up one another to two things, to love and good works, all right? Let us think about that. Not neglecting to meet together because you couldn't really do that if you weren't together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is why Gateway, for instance, we have grow groups. It's why we have kids ministry and youth ministry and women's ministry and men's ministry. I mean, we can't, we can't make you do life together, but we can encourage it. We can create context for that. But here's what happens. Sometimes people, they don't want it. They don't want to get plugged in. They don't want a spiritual, you know, kind of environment for people to watch out for them. And then Satan comes along and he's got a nice shiny trap and they, they take the bait, they take the trap and they're not prepared. They're not in a grow group. They don't have any spiritual friends. There's no accountability. There's no one to help them. And their life starts falling apart. And this will happen every now and then. I'll get an email. I'll get a, I'll get a Facebook message. I'll get a phone call or somebody rushes into church and they say, I took the bait and my life's falling apart and I need you to fix it right now. I need like the perfect sermon to solve my problem or the perfect counseling appointment or whatever it is. And understand we'll always do our best to help people when that happens. But here's what would have been better. It would have been better if before they took the bait, they had some, some, they had relationships with people around them who loved them and who were watching out for them. And, and it would have been better if they had had people to whom they could have said, here's where I tend to fall. Here's the bait I tend to take. So if you see me going down that road, hold me accountable. Give me a call. Text me. Come over to my house. Ask me how I'm doing. And here's what I find. Just my observation over the years as a pastor has been this. When I see people who get overly tired, overly stressed, overly scheduled and lonely, that's often when people are prone to temptation. It's when they're tempted to, you know, overeat, overmedicate, overdrink, overspend. This is what happens. And the devil, here's the thing, the devil knows this about you. He knows when you're weak. He knows the bait you tend to go for. So you need a plan because he's after you. He hates you. He wants to take you down. So you need a plan. Here's a great plan. Surround yourself with people, spiritual people, who will pray for you, who will support you, who will call you and say, how are you doing? Do you need to confess anything? Um, people who will, you can text and say, I'm home, I'm alone, I'm tempted. And they'll be like, I'll be right there. 
People will come over and throw the bait out the window for you. People will come over and, you know, unplug your cable or take your credit card or whatever it is. And I know a lot of times you're like, that just sounds annoying, but that sounds life-saving. We need those people in our life. We need to be connected. Here's the third thing, and we're running out of time, so I'll make this quick. You need to remember Jesus is your victory. See, here's a common attitude I find with people, and that is, I've tried. I, I tried to beat temptation. I tried to beat the devil, but I always end up giving in, right? I, even, if I, even if I resist temptation for an hour, I'll give in after two. Or even if I resist for a week, I'm still going to give in. So what's the point, right? And here's the good news. You have a savior who faced that temptation and beat it. And he beat it, by the way, he did it for you. He didn't do it for him. He's God. He can't beat, he's not giving in. But he did it for you. And Colossians 2 tells us this, great, great set of verses. And you who were dead in your trespasses, so you took the bait, you sinned, and you're spiritually dead. That's every one of us. Okay, this is our, this is our, our biography here. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. How did you become alive? God made you alive. God made you alive. Remember that. Together with him, that's Jesus. So through the work of Jesus, God made you alive. Having forgiven us, this is great. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, all the bait we took, all the sin we committed, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So here's what he's saying. Satan is our accuser. Satan comes before God day and night. He says, did you see what she did? Did you see what he said? Did you see what she drank? Did you see what he bought? Did you see, what, right? Did you see, did you see those things? He's always accusing us. And in the middle of the accusation, and by the way, again, we make it easy for the devil. <laughs> we give him lots of stuff to accuse. And it, 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 the picture here is he has a book for you. You have a book and he's writing down in that book every stupid thing you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed, writing it down. It's a big, it's a big book, right? And he brings it before God and he's like, have you read this lately? Have you seen this? And in the middle of it, the picture is Jesus comes along and goes, oh yeah, I've got, yeah, I've read that book. Give that book to me. And Jesus says, I took that book to the cross. I was holding on to that book when I was on the cross. All of his sins, all of her sins, all of the bait, all that stuff. Yeah, I know all about it. All the stuff they did, all the stuff they're ever gonna do. I already died for all of it. It was all in the book and I paid for it. And now they've been forgiven. And now they've been set, they've been set free. Did they deserve judgment? Yes. Are they gonna get judgment? No. Why? Jesus says, because I paid it all. And Jesus disarmed our enemy. And when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. We'll talk a lot about that next week. It gives you the power to resist temptation. And that takes us to point four. There's always a door. There's always a door. So here's the deal. Some of you have been taking the bait for so long, giving into the same sin for so long, you start to wonder after a while, is there any use? Can I really win this battle? And the bait may seem to you irresistible. But here's the good news. God says there's always a way of escape. Every temptation you'll ever face, there is a door. And you can just walk out, <laughs> amazingly enough. In 1 Corinthians, it says this. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. If you've ever felt like no one understands what I'm dealing with, right? Paul's like, oh, come on, right? It, tons of people have experienced the same temptation, right? It's common. And here's the thing. God is, God is faithful, Right? God is faithful and he will not let you be attempted beyond your ability, 
But with the temptation, he will also provide for you a way of escape. He will provide a door that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So when temptation comes, here's all he's saying. Don't look at the bait. (laughs) And that's what we like to do. We want to look at the bait. We're like, oh, it's so shiny. Oh, I just want to like touch it. I want to date it. I want to log on to it. I want to buy it with credit, right? I just want to take. He says, no, don't look at the bait. Look for the door right? And that's the problem for many of us. We're like, I didn't see a door. You weren't looking for a door. I didn't see an escape. You weren't, you were looking at the bait. Stop looking at the bait and start looking for the door. And when you find the door, run to the door, okay? That's his point. Run. Just go straight for the door. Don't look at the bait anymore because with Jesus, you're not a victim. There's always a door. You always have a choice. You can't say the devil made me do it. I couldn't help it. I had to give in. No, there's always a door. You have a choice. And the choice is the bait or the door. And here's the thing, okay? Your choice, every time you're tempted and there's the bait and there's the door, the choice you make impacts the trajectory of your life every single time. It impacts your relationships. It impacts your marriage. It impacts your job. It impacts your finances and your health. You always have a choice. Why do we fight this battle? Why do we do this? Let me tell you why we do this. Because Jesus is worth it. Our Savior who died for us is worth the fight, the good fight to resist temptation. We fight temptation because our marriage is worth it. It's worth it. And when we choose temptation... And we think we can hide it. We think nobody will know. The devil just laughs, all right? Nobody will ever know what you did. But it always impacts our life. And if you're married, it's always going to impact your marriage. You might not even get it, but it will not. Because your kids are worth it. Your kids are worth you fighting the good fight. Because your legacy is worth it, and your grow group is worth it, and your church is worth it, and the people in this room are worth it. Well, we're going to have to quit here. We're out of time. Um, the good news is uh, the stuff we're not covering today is coming up next week. Imagine that. So we'll be okay. Let's pray together.